You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Uh, Chapter 32 of Exodus. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom brought whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. Then they have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it's not the sound of a victory. It's not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he grounded it into powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewellery, take it off. 
Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so became a laughingstock to the enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other each killing his brother and friend and neighbour. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and the day, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sins. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish... I will punish them for their sins. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. As we come to think about Exodus 32, let's pray that God would be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage uh, that has some pretty exciting bits, but also some pretty scary bits. And so we pray that you would help us to understand what it is you want us to take away from this passage, what it means for our lives as Christians, and how it will help us to grow in our love for you and for your son, Jesus. Uh, We do also pray that you'd keep us warm uh, on this cold day, Lord. Amen. Mediation is messy work. And we've all had that experience where two of our friends are fighting and we're kind of caught in the middle. You know, Jenny is upset with Johnny because Johnny didn't invite her to his birthday party. And now Johnny is upset because Jenny has gone around to their other friend saying, don't go to Johnny's party, it's going to be a terrible party anyway. And so you've stepped in as a mediator. You're trying to help bring them both back together again. You listen to what they have to say. You show them how they could resolve this situation because you feel that without your help, they will never figure things out. But it's hard work because they're both really upset. They need a lot of help. They need a mediator. Now, our relationship with God often needs help too. Not because God's got any problems on his end, it's all about us. You know, do you ever feel that maybe God is just too hard to understand? He feels so distant and you're not sure how he wants you to live, what his will is for you. Or maybe you don't even know what to say to him when you pray. He just seems distant and foreign. Or do you ever feel that you just stuff up too much and you're always getting into trouble with God and you don't know what to do to fix the mess? That's why we need a mediator. Someone who can bridge the gap between God and us. And thankfully... That's always been part of God's plan, to have mediators. 
In fact, in last week's passage, we saw how God set aside Aaron and his sons to, to be the priests so they would do that work of mediation. What we're going to see in our passage today is that Moses was a mediator. We're going to look at that famous incident with the golden calf and we're going to learn that God maintains a relationship with his people through a mediator. It's our big idea for today. And this was true for Israel back then and it's also true for Christians today. So let's get stuck into our passage and we're going to start with how it all went wrong for Israel. It's our first point in the outline, the Israelites diminished the Lord through idolatry. So for the last seven chapters, Moses has been on top of Mount Sinai and he's been receiving instructions from the Lord on how to build the tabernacle and how to set up the priesthood and get them all ready to go. And after 40 days up there, God has given Moses the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. And so it's been going very well at the top of the mountain, unlike downstairs where everything is falling apart. Have a look at verse 1 of Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So they've given up on Moses and it looks like they're giving up on God too. They want new gods who can be with them here in the camp and who can lead them out. And so Aaron responds by gathering up their gold earrings and making an idol in the shape of a calf. It was probably like a, a wooden calf that he made and then he just overlaid it with molten gold. And at the end of verse 4, the people all say to each other, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So it looks like they've actually replaced God and broken the first commandment, which, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. However, when you look closer, it's perhaps not so straightforward. First of all, do you notice they keep referring to gods plural, but there's only one calf. And they say that this calf brought them up out of Egypt, which is, that's what God did. So perhaps Aaron is helping them to not stray too far. And have a look at verse 5. Aaron says, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the calf? No, to the Lord. And then in verse 6 we read words that are almost identical to that covenant confirmation ceremony back in Exodus 24. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. So it kind of looks like they're still trying to worship God in the ways that they've been shown, but rather than worshipping the invisible God, they've attempted to make him visible with this golden calf. Another angle on this is that the ancient people would sometimes see bulls as footstools or pedestals of the gods. And so perhaps they're thinking that this idol would, will bring God's presence down so that he dwells on the back of this golden calf. Can you see then that they haven't really broken the first commandment, they've broken the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an image. 
And as we saw when we studied the Ten Commandments, this one can mean worshipping false gods or worshipping the true God in false ways. This situation is option two, isn't it? The Israelites, they've sensed God's distance, his uh, inaccessibility at the top of the mountain. So they've created a statue to represent God, to bring him down so that they can feel close to him. But in so doing, they have diminished God. Listen to what Jen Wilkins says in her book, Ten Words to Live By on the, the Ten Commandments. She says this about the calf. The image lies about who God truly is. Think about the enormity of the lie the golden calf tells. It is small, but God is immense. It is inanimate, but God is spirit. It is location-bound, but God is everywhere fully present. It is created, but God is uncreated. It is new, but God is eternal. It is impotent, but God is omnipotent. It is destructible, but God is indestructible. It is of minor value, but God is of infinite value. It is blind and deaf and mute, but God sees, hears and speaks. This image is no Yahweh. This is a lie. That's pretty powerful words, aren't they? But the point she's trying to make is that idolatry always diminishes God because it tries to reduce him to an object. It tries to make him controllable or manageable. And a diminished view of God tends to lead to immoral behaviour. After sitting down for their festival meal, they get up and indulge in revelry. We don't exactly know what that involved, what this partying looked like, but it certainly wasn't good. So how do you feel about all of this? I mean, after all they've experienced, doesn't this seem crazy? After the ten plagues in Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, coming to Mount Sinai in the thunderous clouds. It seems crazy, doesn't it? But you know what? We do the same thing. We diminish God through idolatry as well. Now, I'm guessing that none of you have actually carved a little statue and said, Behold the Lord who made me. But with this type of idolatry, it's less about the physical object and more about the concept of God. So we try to make God suit our needs, suit our preferences. It's what we do when we hear a challenging teaching from the Bible and we say, oh, my God would never say that. My God wouldn't want me to suffer. My God would never demand that I change for him. It's what we do when we try to reshape God to align with our society's standards or views. Uh, it's a bit like when people refer to God as she. I don't know if you've ever encountered that before in a prayer or something. People will pray to God as she as if that makes him more inviting. But this forgets that even though God does reveal himself to us using masculine pronouns, he doesn't have a gender. Or it's when we try to go along fully with the sexual revolution and say, well, God doesn't mind what people do in bed or who they do it with, whatever feels right for them. You see, we, we try to make God small or containable. But this type of idolatry is, is foolish 
See, we think we're trying to make God easier to worship, but in the end, it's not really God. We try to make him tangible or more comprehensible. We try to simplify him, sanitize him, modernize him. But in the end, we're saying more about ourselves than we are about God. We're remaking God in our own image. This is dangerous because often it leads to revelry, whatever that means, or perhaps other immoral behaviour. We use our fake God to justify the sinful actions that we love. And you know, this is also dangerous because it invites the anger of the God that we claim to worship. Now, thankfully, Exodus 32 shows the way out of this mess. It's through mediation, which is our next point in our outline. So if you're following along, our next point is the Lord's just anger is turned aside by Moses. You see, God knows what's going on down the mountain, and so he fills Moses in on the details And then look what he says in verse 10. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Now, God has a right to be angry here, doesn't he? After all he's done for these people, they are no better off than the Egyptians. They've got this privileged place in God's heart and in his plans to bless the world Yet despite all of this, they are still engaging in idolatry, idolatrous worship and sinful revelry. So God tells Moses to leave him so he can stoke the fires of his anger. You know, the Lord is already red hot with rage and he wants to turn it up even more. He wants to be fiery hot with rage so he can completely obliterate his people. I mean, far out, God. This is intense stuff, isn't it? How many of you are now thinking, my God would never do that? How many of you now would go, well, I actually prefer the golden calf, please? Now, let's be clear. This is not the sinful anger of a man. This is the fully justified and reasonable anger of a holy God against the unholiness of his people. It's like the anger that you feel when you hear about injustice in the world or you hear that someone's been hurting children. That kind of anger. But God's is a million times more intense and wholly pure and justified. I mean, who could possibly stand against the fierce, burning anger of God? Who could possibly rescue the Israelites from this punishment? Well, Moses can. And Moses does. He is the mediator that Israel needs and he knows exactly what to say. Have a look at verses 11 to 13. I'll read them out. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, It was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky 
And I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Moses pleads with the Lord to be favourable towards the Israelites. And do you notice that he doesn't try to defend their actions? He doesn't try to say, look God, they're, they're a great bunch, you just need to get to know them. No, instead, Moses appeals to God's own character and purposes. His first point is kind of subtle. He calls them your people. Have a look back at verse 7. God is angry with the Israelites, and so he says to Moses, your people whom you brought up out of Egypt. And so now Moses is trying to make sure that God doesn't keep distancing himself and reminds him, no, God, they're your people that you brought up. And so they belong to the Lord. His second appeal is to God's purpose in rescuing them. God's mighty hand was outstretched to show the Egyptians that he is the Lord and he, and he rules over the world. But if he now kills the Israelites, the Egyptians will think that the Lord is evil rather than good and loving. And finally, Moses appeals to God's promises when he points out that God had vowed to Abraham's descendants that they would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and that they would have a land that they could live in. And so wiping them out would be the opposite of that. This is a pretty gutsy prayer from Moses, isn't it? And it teaches us about how we can pray. You see, sometimes we think God will only answer our prayers if we behave really well and impress him with our deeds of devotion. You know, we give reasons to God like, you know I love you, God, so I pray that you would heal me. Or I've been really faithful to you, God, so please help me now. But the Lord is good. The Lord is loving and he keeps his promises. So we should pray to him, appeal to him on the basis of his character and his promises. You say, you invite us to pray in accordance with your will, Lord, and so I ask that it would be your will to heal me. Lord, I know that you love to bless your people and to help them, and so I ask that you would help me out now. It's just a different way of praying. And we can see how this prayer worked out for Moses in verse 14. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now this raises a bit of a question here. Did God actually change his mind? You know, there are some Bible translations where the word appears as repent, which suggests that God turned away from some evil action and Moses is like, don't do that, God, that would be evil. And God goes, oh, phew, thanks for letting me know, Moses. I almost sinned then. Well, actually, the word is relent. I think that's much more accurate. And so we're not charging God with immoral plans, but it, it still does give the impression that Moses was able to override the will of God. I thought God was unchanging and that he actually planned everything out in advance. Well, some people use this passage to say that God does actually change. You know, God hasn't mapped everything out. He's still figuring out what he wants to do and he's open to input from us as he's kind of learning and growing with us. Well, just to be clear, that's not true. God doesn't change. But when we look more closely, we can see that, that God 
actually planned for Moses to intercede. And so he did change from the course that he said to Moses he would take, but that was what he wanted to do. Now, you might find this overly subtle, but I think in verse 10, where God says, now leave me alone, the implication is that if Moses doesn't leave, then God won't wipe out the Israelites. Moses takes the hint, and so he boldly stays. I mean, if God said to you, I'm so angry now, go back down there, I'm going to wipe them all out, you'd be like, yes, sir, I'm going. But Moses boldly stays and he prays. He pleads powerfully for Israel's life. Do you think God was surprised by that? Of course not. That was God's plan all along. He had no intention of breaking his promises. Instead, God is showing Moses and us how it is that he can maintain a relationship with his people through a mediator. Psalm 106 was written centuries after this incident and recounts the event with the golden calf. We read this in verse 23 of Psalm 106. So he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. So on the one hand, Moses had to intercede on behalf of Israel, so God wouldn't wipe them out. But on the other hand, that's why God had chosen Moses in the first place. That's why he raised him up, so that he would take this role. You see, God doesn't always reveal the final goal or the highest perspective of his plans. But he has planned everything out in advance, including making use of our own prayers and particularly the work of mediators who stand in the breach between a holy God and his unholy people. So that's mediation working one way, but the mediation works the other way as well. Because after God relents, Moses then descends the mountain and mediates the Lord's consequences to the Israelites. It's our next point in our outline. We're going to move through this pretty quickly because I'm keen for us to get back up the top of the mountain again. So as Moses comes down, he hears singing, he sees the calf, he sees the people dancing, and then look at his reaction, verses 19 and 20. His anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on water and made the Israelites drink it. I mean, wow, that's what an angry Moses does. Imagine what an angry God would have done. But these are actually consequences from God himself. While Moses has successfully interceded so that the nation won't be destroyed, there are still judgments, there are still consequences. First, the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them are destroyed. I think Moses is trying to shock the Israelites up and see they've violated the covenant that's only just been recently made. The second judgment is that the golden calf is destroyed. The fact that Moses can burn it and then grind it up, suggests that it probably was a wooden statue overlaid with gold. And so by adding the ground up powder to water and making the people drink it, Moses is ensuring that they realise this was no God at all. You can't drink your God. And also, once it's passed through 
the human body and kind of come out the other end. No one's going to confuse that with a God, right? Moses is making sure that the idolatry has come to an end. Finally, 3,000 men are immediately destroyed in judgment. Once the calf is dealt with, Moses turns to Aaron and asks, how on earth could this happen? You know, he'd left his brother in charge of the Israelites. And Aaron's reply is as disappointing as it is hilarious. He says, well, I threw all this jewellery into the fire and out popped this golden calf. I don't know how it happened. I mean, what a liar, what a coward. Moses sees how the camp is running wild and so he calls to himself, anyone who is still loyal to the Lord. And of all the 12 tribes, it's just the Levites who rally to his side. And then something truly shocking happens. The Lord commands each of these men to take a sword and to run from one side of the camp to the other, killing every man they encounter. And about 3,000 perish. I mean, no matter how you look at this, it is a truly horrific event. Now, I don't know, maybe we could take some comfort in saying, well, perhaps because God has guided, he made sure that the men who were particularly responsible for this idolatry, they were the ones who were judged. But I think in the end, we just need to let it terrify us and to go, this is... This shows just how serious covenant violations are. While Moses interceded on behalf of the nation, it doesn't prevent individuals suffering judgment. Israel may continue, but some Israelites have now paid the ultimate price for their wickedness. So the next day, Moses is still clearly greatly disturbed by this event and realises that God may yet wipe them all out. Have a look at verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses ascends the mountain again. But as we'll see in our next point, Moses unsuccessfully mediates on behalf of the Israelites before the Lord. Have a look at what Moses says in verses 31 and 32. Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Can you see Moses is trying to make atonement for the people. He's pleading with the Lord to forgive them of this great sin of idolatry. And if God is not able to forgive then Moses offers his own life in exchange. And I think he means more than just simply dying. I think Moses is offering to have his name removed from the book of God's covenant people so that he's no longer part of God's chosen people, no longer under God's blessing. In other words, he is offering to go to hell in place of his fellow Israelites. Now, some of you might be thinking about Romans chapter 9 now because centuries later, the Apostle Paul said something very similar. When talking about his fellow Israelites who hadn't put their faith in Jesus, he, he wrote, 
in Romans 9 verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So Moses makes a noble offer and shockingly God refuses. You see, Moses cannot make atonement for other sinners. Have a look at God's response in verses 33 and 34. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. Moses has tried and failed to mediate. Earlier he was able to mediate forgiveness on behalf of the nation, but he can't do it for every particular individual. God will still punish. He might delay, but judgment will come. And that's what this final verse is about. A, a plague warns of future judgment. We read this in verse 35. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. So despite there being all these consequences already, 3,000 men dying, God is still saying to the surviving Israelites that judgment is still coming for them. Because after all... Um, we don't have to assume that just because individuals caught this plague, this sickness, that they all died. It would have been a sign to them that God was displeased with them. And as they recovered, they would have to remember, well, we're still living under the shadow of judgment. God was gracious in delaying the sentence, but their time would come. I don't know about you, but I find this pretty scary <laughs> and also a bit confusing. I mean, surely the point of the sacrificial system is that people's sins can be atoned for. Surely that was the whole point of the priesthood what we looked at last week. But again, I believe this chapter is teaching us about mediation. You see, the first scene on the mountain shows us that God forgives his people through the work of a mediator. But the second scene on the mountain teaches us that while Moses is an exceptional mediator, he's not a perfect mediator. I mean, after all, he was a murderer and a coward, wasn't he? He had his own issues. And so he couldn't make atonement for the people. They needed someone else, a better mediator. Who did they need? I heard very quietly, Jesus. Yes, that's right. They needed Jesus. You know, what I love about this true story is that it shows us how Jesus is the perfect mediator who bridges the gap between God and us. First of all, he reveals God to us so we can worship him rightly. You see, just like the Israelites, we can feel that God is distant, he's incomprehensible, and like them, we try to solve it by simplifying God, bringing him down to our level. But this will always lead to idolatry where we create a false picture of God and we worship him in false ways. The solution is that God himself comes down to us to communicate clearly to us what he is like. Jesus, he was the son of God, made flesh, revealing to us the perfect image and representation of God. Not what God looks like, but God's character his intentions, his heart. 
In the Lord Jesus, we learn that God is gentle and lowly of heart, that he cares for the sick, the sinner, the brokenhearted. We learn that God has always been working on a plan for us to be with him. He bridges that gap. But that's not to say that Jesus simplifies God. Even Jesus himself has some hard teachings for us to hear, things that we find confusing, truths that we have to grapple with. Even Jesus challenges our views and our preferences. And surely that's what you would expect of God revealing himself to us. If we had a picture of God, if we had an understanding of Jesus where Jesus agrees with us 100%, it probably means that that's not the real Jesus. We need to let that challenge sit. So our task is to keep assessing our ideas about God, to ensure that they are biblical. We don't want to diminish God by creating an idol of him. The second way Jesus is a perfect mediator is that he intercedes for us. And that word intercedes is really important. You see, we might be tempted to think that Jesus intervenes for us. You know, God the Father, he's an angry grump, he's abusive. And so God the Son has to step in and do this intervention to protect us, to to keep God at bay. But Jesus doesn't oppose the Father. He doesn't try to get the Father to change his mind. Rather, Jesus acts in line with the Father's will. Jesus prays in line with the Father's will and good purposes. When Jesus prays, he appeals to God's character and his promises, just like Moses did. What happened on the top of Mount Sinai is a preview, is an example of what happens every day right now in the heavens where Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. And Jesus can do this perfectly because he is both man and God. He can bridge that gap. And so what that means for our relationship with God is that we can pray confidently because Jesus takes our prayers and he brings them to the Father. And so we don't have to say the perfect prayer. We don't have to get all of our words right because Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, a better relationship, a secure relationship. And he keeps that communication line open all the time. Even though Jesus is the one who intercedes on our behalf, we we can still learn from his example, the example of Moses. You see, God's mind can't be changed, but he delights to make use of our prayers to accomplish his plans. And so rather than waiting for God to act, to kind of discern what his will might be, why not pray that he would act? And when you pray, speak of his character, refer to his promises found in the Bible. Don't plead on the basis of your righteousness, which is lacking, but plead on the basis of his righteousness, which is perfect. Because in this way, you will be praying in line with God's will, just as he has planned. And finally, Jesus atones for us so that we can be with God forever. Moses couldn't offer his life in exchange for others, but Jesus can. Because Jesus was perfect. And so our sins can be placed on him. They're allocated to his account so that he pays the price. And Jesus was indeed blotted out from the book of life. As Isaiah 53 verse 8 says, For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. 
Jesus makes atonement for our sins by offering his life as the perfect sacrifice. You see, this is how God could postpone judgment for his people. He'd already planned for a perfect mediator to come who could actually make atonement, unlike Moses. And so while the plague that the Israelites suffered was a warning of future judgment, any Israelites who repented and had faith in God would have been spared the final sentence. And it's the same today. We might suffer sometimes due to our own sin. God can do this to discipline us, to wake us up, to motivate us. But regardless of why we might be suffering, suffering now is not a sign for us of future judgment. Because if we've put our faith in Jesus, the perfect mediator, that final judgment has already taken place at the cross. And so any suffering we have now is not a sign that we will be judged in the future. Well, that's Exodus 32. Mediation is messy, difficult, complicated work. But Jesus has done this for all Christians and he continues to mediate today, making God known to us, helping us as we pray, reminding us that he has done the great deed of atonement so that we can be in perfect relationship with God. And this is how God maintains a relationship with us, his covenant people. So let's enjoy that relationship now by praying to him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this true story in your word, which shows just how holy you are, how just you are. And we thank you that Jesus has come not to make you less holy or less just, but to bear your holy wrath so that we, sinners, could be in relationship with you. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your work of mediation. Help us to listen to you, to follow you, to trust in you, and to pray through you. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.